Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We turn our attention now to energy. Uh, after hurricanes Katrina and Rita hit the U.S. about a dozen years ago, the International Energy Agency released emergency petroleum reserves. This time, there doesn't seem to be any need to release these stocks because inventories remain high. Here to tell us more about the effects of Hurricane Harvey on the energy industry is Andy Lipow. He is the president of Lipow Oil Associates, and they are based in Houston. Andy joins us in our 1130 studios here. Thanks very much for being here. And first of all, maybe just tell people you're from Houston. You can't get back home, correct? Uh that's right. I can't get back home because the airlines are not restoring their full schedules. So even though the airports have begun operations, if if you were to look, the amount of flights is a handful every day. But it appears that uh, I'm flying on Southwest. They'll restore full operations by Sunday. Okay. So can we apply similar kind of uh, perspective when it comes to the energy industry that even though that you may say, all right, certain refineries are shut down, the effects ripple through the entire energy complex. Well, they certainly do. And if one looks at how Harvey has impacted the Texas Gulf Coast, it started in Corpus and it moved over to the Houston area. And now it's in the Beaumont Port Arthur area. So we've had this ripple effect from west to east, shutting down refineries. As we stand here today, the refineries in Corpus Christi are in their startup uh, uh, operations, and we expect to see a, a similar events happen in Houston as over the next few weeks. But Beaumont Port Arthur really has taken the brunt of the flooding event, and it may be several weeks or even a month to get them back. So right now I'm looking at gasoline futures that are at the highest level since 2014. Also, uh, they have risen just today alone uh, nearly 13%. So there definitely is a lot of expectation that gas supplies, refined uh, gas, uh, refined crude, it, they're going to be in short supply. Do you think that the current uh, market sentiment is overblown or do you think that gasoline uh, has further to climb? Well, I think the market uh, looked at uh, today's news when Motiva said it's going to take them two weeks just to assess the damage in Port Arthur, and they're extrapolating that to the rest of the refineries in that region that account for 8% of the total refinery capacity in the U.S. So we are going to see these spikes until we see more refineries get back online. Can you speak a little bit about the Colonial Pipeline? Because there's been some back and forth about the information about the pipeline and about the fuel that uh, normally flows through it. Sure. So Colonial Pipeline originates in Houston and picks up refined products from Houston and then Beaumont Port Arthur, then the Louisiana refineries, as well as Mississippi. And it had been reported that the entire pipeline for both gasoline and diesel fuel had been shut down. But that's actually not quite correct. What is correct is that Colonial Pipeline continues to operate by receiving refined products from those operations in Lake Charles or New Orleans or Pascagoula, Mississippi. But it is true that they, in fact, are shut down out of Houston and Beaumont Port Arthur locations because those refineries simply aren't running. 
Andy, I'm looking right now. The average gas price at the pump in the United States right now is about $2.44, maybe $0.45. It's obviously, uh, actually, it's much lower right now in Texas, which is interesting because a lot of people have talked about perhaps the entire gasoline supply getting cut off for a while. How high do you expect prices to go in the near term? Well, I think they're going to jump another 20 cents a gallon from where they are today. If we were to look at the price in the pipeline system or the wholesale price, it's up 50 cents a gallon as uh, retailers and refiners scramble for supplies. So a lot of that increase is going to be passed into the consumer. We're looking right now at NYMEX gasoline futures. They're up more than 13 percent. Andy, uh, what kinds of maintenance and what kinds of damage can you assess based on your previous knowledge of what happens when you flood uh, a refinery? So the biggest damage occurs to the electric motors that have been submerged. So they have to be pulled out of the refinery, in many cases rewired, and then brought back. But when you have so many pumps and motors that have been damaged, you simply run out of uh, repair shops, if you will, to get them back online really quickly. Andy, when I talk about rising gas prices, I have to think someone is going to benefit from this because someone is getting paid more for their gasoline. Who is it? Well, the biggest beneficiaries are those refiners who continue to operate and are able to sell product into the market. So which ones are they? So the ones here in the U.S. that come to mind right away are PBF Energy, Holly Frontier, Tesoro, CVR, or DELEC, because they all have operations that are far from the uh, Hurricane Harvey impacts, as well as European refiners are now benefiting because there's strong demand for them to make gasoline to ship over to the U.S., Will they find uh, more customers, for example, in Latin America? Because don't they, uh, Latin American countries, they rely on imports from Texas and Louisiana for their refined product. Well, that is certainly going to happen. If we were to look at Mexico specifically, who's buying about 350,000 barrels a day of gasoline from the U.S., they need to scramble for supplies from other parts of the world. So where they look to is uh, Europe and Asia. What about the argument that you're going to see such reduced demand from people in Texas that that'll eventually uh, create some equilibrium in the market? Uh, Do you think that's the case? And do you expect shortages of gasoline in Texas during this whole cleanup? Well, while there has been some demand destruction in Texas, it's nowhere near... Uh, the loss of refinery supply. We've had 31% of the refineries uh, in the U.S. being affected by uh, Harvey. At the same time, refiners have reduced runs by over 5 million barrels a day, even though some of them are in partial operation. So there is a big impact, and that's why you're seeing soaring gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel prices. Will you see any changes in the way that the refinery or energy industry does business or protects its assets after this hurricane? Well, it's very difficult to protect yourself from four and a half feet of rain. So, uh, I, you know, they may look at raising their electrical pumps, you know, to a little bit higher, a couple, uh, three or four feet off the ground. But I don't think as a practical matter, they're going to be able to do much unless they're able to build dikes around the refineries to keep the water out. 
Well, Annie, good luck getting home. I'm sure it's going to be a trying expedition. And even once you get there, just getting to your home uh, might be quite an adventure, yeah? Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, all our best. Uh, Andy Lipow is president of Lipow Oil Associates, uh, which is based in Houston, but he is marooned here in New York City. Uh, there could be worse places to be marooned, but uh, we really wish you all the best getting back and uh, getting back to normal in the area. Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's uh, president, Donald Trump's son-in-law and top advisor, uh, he wakes up each morning to a growing problem. And here to tell us what that problem is and the extent to which that problem seems to bedevil him is uh, our own reporter for Bloomberg Businessweek, David Kochineski. And David, thanks very much for being with us. Can you describe uh, for people, maybe they're not familiar with Jared Kushner's uh, family business, what exactly uh, does his family do? How did it get into the real estate business and what kind of issues are they facing? Um, the Kushners have been a real estate family for several generations. Um, Jared's grandparents, who are Holocaust survivors, started a small construction company. Um, his dad took over the company in the 80s when it had about 4,000 apartments. And um, by the 2000s, early 2000s, they had 25,000 apartments, mostly in the suburbs. Um, in 2007, uh, when Jared, shortly after Jared had kind of taken control of the company, they moved into New York real estate and they bought a tower at 666 Fifth Avenue. They bought it at the height of the market, paid a lot of money, took on a lot of debt, and have been struggling with that asset ever since. They paid $1.8 billion, correct? And that was a new record. Yes, it was a record for any building in the U.S. at the time. Um, it was highly leveraged. Um, and in order to make it work, um, they had to take on a, a lot of debt. They had to sell some of the most expensive assets. There's some retail on the lower floors of it that was um, is profitable, but they had to sell that off. They had to refinance and kind of turn over 50% of the rest of the building to Vornado, the, the big, very profitable real estate company. Um, now, with the debt is coming due, um, the mortgage will be is due in 2019. They've only been paying interest so far. They got to figure out a way to make this building work. And, and as of now, there are some quarters where it is not profitable. So refinancing it is going to be difficult when it's not turning a profit. They've been searching the globe, trying to raise money and get foreign investment to prop it up. And that's what our story is about. Right. And, and part of the story was the complications that come along with looking for international financing when you are the son-in-law of the president of the United States, correct? I mean, that, that's sort of becoming somewhat of an obstacle as well as an advantage. Yes. And, you know, in January, Jared Kushner um, divested of his interest in the company. He transferred the company to other family members. So he technically is not involved in it. Um, but because he's a top advisor to the president, there are a lot of concerns about potential conflicts of interest. And um, we laid out in the story for the first time that um, there were a, a sovereign wealth fund in South Korea that he and his father had met with to ask for investments during this campaign in 2016 as Donald Trump was making his way to the White House. Um, there's a Saudi investor who in 2015 the, the family had preliminary talks with that had not been uh, mentioned before. Um, and what, what we saw in our reporting is that, um, you know, until 2015 or so, they had a hard time getting anyone to um, show interest or in, in many times not even take meetings with them. As Donald Trump rose, 
um, and Jared's prominence rose to a lot of people interested, um, including some uh, one that's been reported before was Angbang, the Chinese corporation that's tightly uh, tied closely to the government. Um, the Kushners, uh, after the election, came to a deal where Angbang was going to bail them out. Um, after that deal, the details of that deal came public that fell apart. Um, but what we found in our reporting is that there's a lot of other places they've been looking for money, and they still, at this point, have not figured out a solution to the building. Well, uh, David, in your reporting, uh, what kind of options are there for uh, for the Kushner Real Estate Company? Uh, well, you know, Laurent Morali, who we interviewed, uh, is the president of Kushner Companies. He said that they have several options. The first is this, what is called the mega project, is grand um, this grand vision where they would knock down the building um, and build a gigantic 80-story tower with five floors of retail, something that looked like Oz or Abu Dhabi. This, there's been drawings of it, um, and it's this glittering thing, but it would be so astronomically expensive. Um, a lot of, you know, most of the investors that they've approached um, are hesitant to get involved because they think that uh, the Manhattan real estate market and retail market can't, sustain the kind of numbers it would take to build something that big. So that's a big one. And, and Mr. Morali told us that they still are out there trying to do that. If it is not, if they can't get that, they say that they'll have to try to bring in other investors and maybe work the building out as um, an office building. But it has proven so far, um, you know, it's been tough for them to do it because it's an older building. Uh, the layout of the building makes it uh, kind of tough to um, it's not like a modern, airy building. It has it has uh, tight columns and kind of lower ceilings and not the kind of light and spacious feel that modern offices, um, businesses want uh, to pay top dollar for. And there's also been a change in the Manhattan um, real estate market. I mean, Midtown, uh, where they are at 50, um, 53rd and... Fifth is not as hot a market as as it has been in the past, and there's a lot of development going on on the west side. And um, so, to get the kind of rents that they would need to make that building work um, will be a challenge. And if they can't get the mega project built, it probably would involve some kind of renovation that would be difficult um, and expensive to to carry off. Real quick, twenty seconds. Have you heard a response from the Kushner family? Uh, we have not heard from the Christian family. We spoke to them extensively and went over all the details of it beforehand. And um, so we haven't, they've, they've got, hadn't, haven't said anything about it at this point. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for the uh, interesting reporting on this building, 666 Park Avenue. And uh, $1.8 billion is a lot of money for a building. Uh, right now, uh, David Kochineski, uh, thank you so much for joining us. He's a reporter for Bloomberg Business Week uh, who wrote this story, which is truly fabulous. You should definitely uh, read it in the latest edition of Business Week. We hear a lot about cyber crimes, about cybersecurity. We've heard rumors that perhaps that had something to do with the crash uh, in uh, Southeast Asia. We've heard about uh, what the hacking that went uh, on with the election and around that with the emails. Now I want to talk about the areas that are least protected that perhaps will become a little bit more protected uh, against these cyber attacks going forward. I want to bring in Amnan Barlev. He is president of Checkpoint Software, which is based in Tel Aviv, but he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Amnan, can you give us a sense of where you think the biggest vulnerability remains? 
Well, I think the biggest vulnerability is actually where the most critical part of our lives stays, which is our critical infrastructure, our electricity, our water, our, the very basic things that we do today in our lives, and the chaos that will happen if those critical infrastructure will be infected. And those environments are much more conservative. Their approach there is, if it's not broken, don't fix it. And I think they have to get the standard of the rest of the industry for this critical infrastructure. But, you know, a lot of people think about that infrastructure as being perhaps less connected than so, others and therefore more immune to some of these cyber attacks. Yes, but that surprisingly or not, there's this trend that I can tell you that networks tend to connect. Every networks tend to connect to others, and I think Internet changed that because people are connecting all the time. Networks are connecting all the time. And I've seen different environments, networks are connected. And not the, only that, I don't know if you remember, there was a big attack on Iran many years ago. It was totally unconnected network, but with a USB token, get it into the network, and then everything uh, brought inside. So those networks are, are very vulnerable. And I believe that when I'm looking at overall what happened in the world, most of the countries actually have cyber warrior, not to defend, but to offend. And they will go after those environments. They will not go after Google or Facebook. They will go to critical infrastructure. You know, one of the things that uh, has been in the news have been these accidents that the U.S. Navy, as uh, Lisa alluded to, have been involved in. The most recent one involves the uh, destroyer, the USS uh, John McCain. This was uh, an accident with a tanker uh, near Singapore. And I wonder if you could uh, offer your thoughts on, do you believe that there was uh, any involvement from electronic cyber attacks in any of these? To be fair, I don't have any details, of course. I'm, I'm listening like you, so I don't have any. I'm just saying that all of those environments are controlled by computers. And all of those computers can be accessed in different ways. So if you ask me if possibility like that exists, the answer is yes. If that's what's really happening, I really don't know. Because there, I mean, there have been reports in the past. I mean, for example, uh, in 2013, uh, graduate students were able to break into the GPS system of a yacht and actually mm -hmm. directed it way off course. That's possible with just about any network you're saying. I can tell you basically that every system can be hacked from your uh, um, robot that clean your house to electricity system everywhere. So every system can be hacked. Well, with that um, uplifting idea, what could be done to prevent this? And uh, are big countries doing what's necessary? So I think the, the, the private sector is actually doing much more and is investing much more. Um, the, the countries, for different reasons, are way behind. They start with regulation. They have good regulation systems, and they start building like security operating systems, but they don't have the fundamentals. Think for a second the allegory for uh, a physical environment. You have policemen, you have military, you have uh, sheriffs that when there is an incident, you just send those forces and they block it. But what happened when there's a cyber attack in, in, in the U.S.? You don't have those soldiers. And I think the next evolution that country will have to have, that they will have to have those kind of uh, cyber 
sniffers spread around the network, when they know there is an attack, they can actually activate them and block those attacks, and they have to do that. You know, I have to say that this raises a, a little bit of concern when I hear about having cyber police officers of the state, because it sort of brings to mind a very 1984 type of situation that is uh, trying to curtail people's First Amendment rights and interfering with their daily lives, spying on them. Uh, how can how can there be sort of some uh, resolution to those tensions? Well, it's a very complex uh, 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 questions and a complex subject. Uh, by any means, I think the, the idea should not be with having a big brother watching on you uh, in any way. I just think that we it's a matter of, of balance. It's the same way that you're going to uh, an airport and you need to take your shoes off. Or when you go to the street and there is a policeman over there, you, you accepted that. And we should accept the fact that somebody will help us by protecting us, not by watching on us by any means. And that have to be very clearly uh, uh, prevented and regulated. But there should be a case when I already knows about attack, then I can actually stop it, which today it's not happening. You've been quoted as saying that uh, one of the rules or one of the secrets of uh, being a CEO is uh, don't try to be loved. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, first, I'm the president and CEO of Checkpoint. Uh, it's meant that you should not be popular just doing things because the market is asking for that or because there's a pushback from, from you know Wall Street to say, hey, you have to do that. I think you need to stick to your DNA and people will respect you for that. I think people that are trying just to do things because there is a fashion, uh, uh, like, hey, I have to now grow the, uh, my business twice and I just became, I mean, not profitable, stuff like that. So so you need to make sure that you have a principle upon you, build your business and you manage your business and stick to them. Uh, that's much more important than just to do what everybody asks you to do. Well, uh, given that and the fact that you're in the U.S., I imagine you're you're speaking with potential clients, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, even though the government is less uh, perhaps advanced in their attempts to regulate uh, some of these cyber attacks, uh, are they receptive to the suggestion that they need to have some kind of task force, police force, some way to regulate uh, that's better than what they yeah, have. Yes, it's happening in the U.S. It's happening in other countries. Um, I think U.S. overall administration is very complex and much more difficult. And we, we are actually dealing with many smaller countries where things are um, simpler to do. But And government are accepting the fact that they need to build systems that allow them to deal uh, with cyber attack like they do for physical attack. So they, they understand that and they're evolving on that. The same things happen also in the U.S. It's a bit slower, but it's happening here as well. Thanks for spending time with us and coming by. Amnon Barlev is the president of Checkpoint Software. He is an expert in the world of cybersecurity and also in uh, protecting your network against malware and other cyber attacks. Let's turn our attention now to Brexit and Brexit negotiations. Joining us, Ed Ludlow. He is our UK correspondent for Bloomberg. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Ed, thanks for being here. Uh, maybe just bring everyone up to date on, are there actually negotiations on Brexit? Are they actually taking place and talking about things that mean things? 
So where we are now, this afternoon, we just finished the third formal round of negotiations, okay? Uh, one of the big questions has been the pace of negotiations, how often they're meeting, because it's all done behind closed doors. This is how it works. David Davis, the UK Brexit Secretary, rocks up on the Monday to Brussels. He makes a statement alongside his EU counterpart, Barnier, then closed doors for a few days. They come back and they update on progress. And this is the point after three rounds from what we've heard today at that press conference, there isn't any progress and there's disagreement between the two on their position, on what, you know, on what each sees as uh, it's a tug of war. You know, Britain say, you know, we want flexibility from you, the European Union. We want flexibility. And the European Union say back, we want progress from you. We want evidence that you've thought about these points of the divorce. Uh, and so earlier today, look at the language that Michel Barnier was using. He was saying sufficient progress this is like the eu buzzword sufficient progress uh and it's all about when they can finish the divorce talks and move on to trade talks that's the key point here and there's a frustration from both sides and for all of us waiting there sitting watching for the updates so in other words there's no progress being made so remember the deadline okay march 2019 okay and what we're saying uh what we're seeing is Britain wants to move quickly onto trade negotiations. Davis was saying in the press conference earlier, they are, they're inexplicable. They're one and the same. You have to negotiate divorce and trade at the same time. What the EU is saying is that we refuse to move on to trade until uh, you have proved that you're going to meet your financial obligations. I'll come on to that in a second. That you've got your citizens' right issues sorted out and that you've got a solution to the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Now, so people familiar with the matter we spoke to earlier today said, actually, what the Brits have been doing in these sessions is trying to pick holes in the EU's position on the financial bill rather than saying what they're willing to pay. So, you know, the EU want them to settle a financial bill, their financial obligations. They're saying this is how much we think it is. Rather than Britain say, well, actually, this is how much we're willing to pay. They've been picking holes in the EU's number. That's pretty that's pretty a bad. That's that's not a good sign. That sort of signifies that there's a quite a ways to go before people kind of get to an acceptance. Where are markets pricing all this? I mean, how are traders uh, sort of reflecting the lack of agreement here in prices and what assets are you looking at in particular? Yeah, well, I was speaking to Neil Jones of Mizuho this morning, um, who's head of uh, sell side, and he was basically saying that sterling is now a political currency and that it, there aren't the sharp volatile moves that we've seen, but you see weakness as investors look at the commentary coming out of the discussions. When the two men are speaking in Brussels, investors are watching, they're waiting to see, have we got progress? No, sterling weaker throughout the morning. Now, you've also got the other angle, which is uh, growth in the UK. And when you look at the six months that followed Brexit, you know the UK economy was surprisingly resilient if you look at the data. But what we're seeing now is a different picture. Business investment is down significantly because those exporters, those UK exporters, what's their biggest market? It's the European Union. They don't know what the relationship with that market will be when, the, when Brexit comes to fruition. And so they're not in boosting their volumes. But Neil Jones was telling me this morning that he thinks he'll see other UK assets start to reflect that. The smaller mid-cap companies, right, where... Their, EU is their biggest market and they are sensitive to sterling and they're sensitive uh, to that trade relationship. But mostly we're seeing it in this, what he calls a political currency, GBP. Yeah. I'm trying to think of, you know, which which area you can point to that might even lead to some success, but I, it's a challenge. Um, uh, the, Europe, the European Court of Justice, right? I mean, the, the rules and regulations that supposedly govern, you know, relationships between countries and so on. Um, 
what hap- what what are the 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 thoughts i mean is there any transitional program even being put into place so there's the the two sides are at odds so basically consider brexit day the deadline day itself Britain's position is that the European Court of Justice can have jurisdiction on matters that are already underway, cases already underway, up until and including that day, Brexit deadline day. But after that, they say that the European Court of Justice should not have any jurisdiction uh, of any business matters, civil matters here in the UK. The EU are saying that the ECJ should be able to deal with cases after Brexit where you know they have they had an existing mandate to do so in civil rights cases uh, and in other business dealings so there are odds there what is the compromise it's one says that the ecj should the other says it shouldn't is it that they find areas of commonality where the ecj can continue there are there is a court that uh, that adjudicates the relationship between the eu and non-eu countries for example uh, like norway and switzerland but that has limited power and the question is whether britain can accept some kind of transitional court like that ed you're a born and bred londonite and uh, <laughs> how has uh, how has the environment changed since the brexit vote it is different uh london is a multicultural city as anyone that will have been knows and one thing you know i was talking to people about earlier is the issue of students okay now people underestimate the vast numbers of international students that come into london many from the european union we have what is called the erasmus scheme it is a european union funded scheme whereby british and european union students can come and travel and study freely in the uk or vice versa one of the questions is what happens to that scheme people are putting off their decisions just like businesses putting off investment people are putting off their decision to come to the UK. It's changing people's perception. And, and actually, you know, amongst, I don't want to talk about sort of a- anecdotal evidence, but the, amongst young people, that is a big thing. It changed people's vision of Britain. Ed Ludlow, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to see you in person, in the flesh, in our New York offices. Ed Ludlow is our UK correspondent for Bloomberg News based in London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.